Well, again, good morning. Thank you for joining us. I want to encourage you now, grab your Bibles and open them or turn them on to Revelation chapter 20 uh, with us this morning. Is This morning we're going to begin a new series focusing on missions and why mission work is important in the life of every believer as well as the church. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that we go and we share the gospel uh, one of them, John Stott said, was we go because we want to make the name of Jesus famous. And certainly we want to make sure that our life points others to Christ. And, and we want to say with John the Baptist that he must increase as, but we must decrease. But this morning as we open this series that will be about four to five weeks on missions, we want to look at another reason of why it is important that we go. And that is that we understand the terrible reality that awaits all those who die having rejected Jesus. Now as we begin this morning, we need to have an honest conversation with one another and admit that times in America have changed. In the 70s and the 80s, uh, in the American church, hell was preached on early and often even if at times it was used more as a scare tactic than a biblical doctrine. But it's not the case anymore. Church historian Marty Martin has said that hell has disappeared from the church and no one noticed. And it's not so much that hell has disappeared as much as we are trying to ignore it or change what that word truly means. And we have done so in an effort to become more attractive to the lost because so-called church growth experts have told us things such as, well, don't use churchy words. Don't preach too hard or often about sin or hell because it makes people uncomfortable. And I'm going to be honest, I agree with one part of that statement. It makes people uncomfortable. But if you're going to walk with God, if you are going to be faithful to God, then you better become comfortable with the uncomfortable. I mean, let me ask you something. If you go to a doctor and he runs a bunch of tests and he gets the results of the test back, but he doesn't tell you, hey, you have cancer, are you going to trust him? No. I mean, that would be cruel to know what's wrong and maybe how to treat it, but do nothing about it yet, even if that was the case. Even if you had a doctor that did that, the worst that would happen to you is that you would die of cancer. But if the church ignores the doctrine of hell and we don't tell the lost that apart from a relationship with Jesus, this is your eternity, not only will they physically die, but they will spiritually be dead. And I would submit to you this morning that the church being silent on hell is more offensive than a doctor not telling you you have cancer. But what's happening is we ignore it or we change it. We, we now use the, the term hell in the context of, well, the Holocaust was Hell. Or the suffering of, of people around the world. Well, that's, that's hell. Yet neither one of those is the biblical definition of hell. So this morning my goal, my aim, is to as clearly as possible lay out the doctrine of hell. 
And to answer this question, why should you care? If you are here and you have never trusted Jesus Christ, why should you care about the reality of hell? If you are here and you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, why should you care about hell? Well, I would say that the one big thing this morning is very simply this, that the reality of hell should compel us to share the gospel. Let's look at it in Scripture together. Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to begin in verse 11. If you would stand to honor the reading of God's word. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth that is contained therein. And Lord, as we open up your word, may we not doubt it or debate it, but may we simply hear what the Spirit will say, that he would be our teacher, knowing that he will guide us into all truth of who we are, but more importantly, who God is. And so, Lord, may we have ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The reality of hell should compel us to share the gospel. There are three truths about unbelievers that we see in this text. The first is this, that unbelievers will stand before God one day. Verse 11 tells of the great undoing of the world uh, that has been prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus spoke on it in the Gospels. And even Peter spoke of it later in the New Testament. Now, our text, we, we want to work on a chronology here. I want you to understand when will this great white throne take place. And, and as we understand, the next prophetical event is going to be the removal of the church from this world, which will make the pathway for the final Antichrist. He will lead this one world government in what's commonly referred to as a tribulation period. Scripture says that it will be unlike anything that this world has ever seen, that it will last for seven years. It's covered in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. That will culminate with a personal, visible return of Jesus Christ to this earth as given in Revelation 19. Upon his return, he will begin this rule and reign for the city of Jerusalem, that will last for a thousand years, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And so after that thousand year time, we will come to this final judgment that we looked at, this great white throne judgment. Now, in commenting on this throne that is portrayed by the 
uh, disciple John, John MacArthur says, the throne is white to symbolize the purity and the holiness of the God who is sitting on it. And so John is saying that the one who is on this throne, the one that we will give an account to, he is morally pure and holy in every possible way. That he is the standard by which the world will be judged. And that we will give an account to this holy, perfect one. But the question becomes... Who exactly is being judged at this great white throne? And what are they being judged based upon or judged for? And this leads us to the second truth of unbelievers in this text. And it is this, that unbelievers will be judged based on their works. Verse 12 definitively tells us who is at this judgment. Because it says, and I saw the dead. That is the spiritually dead. Those that do not have a relationship with Christ and they died apart from a relationship with Christ. They are the ones in focus here being judged. Now, how else do we know that? Well, look at what they are judged for. Verse, the end of verse 12 and into verse 13. It says, which were written in the books according to their works. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. See, a true believer in Jesus Christ has passed from death into life based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We are not giving an account for our sins. We, in a different judgment, will give an account for our faithfulness to our calling. But those that are standing before God here... They are being judged based on their life. Notice the plural of books that they are judged in. What is it? Well, it's a record of their thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions. This is what is being judged in this text. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, Solomon writes, for, every, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. The things that, we, that the lost believe they're getting away with will be laid open before them on this great and terrible day of judgment. Now there is a contrast in this text because you have the book singular which is identified in verse 12 and verse 15 as the book of life this is the book in which all those who have surrendered to the grace of God and been saved by that grace their name is in this book notice they are not judged based on that book rather they are being judged based on the books of their thoughts and attitudes actions and words Now, a lot of people uh, struggle with the doctrine of hell. One of the most common objections to it is this. Well, how can a loving God, how could he send anyone to an everlasting punishment? Fact of the matter, a now former evangelical theologian by the name of Clark Pinnock, he has renounced his faith entirely because of the doctrine of hell. In fact, he wrote this. 
He said, quote, a deity who would inflict eternal torment and suffering on someone is more like Satan than God. This is Pinnock's grand statement. He's saying that there is no way a God would, that God would do this. And there's a lot of people that agree with him. However, it ignores the very truth of Scripture. Because Scripture teaches that it is the lost person who chooses hell rather than choosing the grace of God, which would lead to salvation. Now, how do we know that? Because again, look, it says that they are, based, they are judged based on their works. We are either judged based on our works or we have been judged by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. One way or the other, we are going to give an account for our life. We will either be judged on the cross or our own works. And what we see here is those standing at the great white throne at the end of time are judged because they have rejected God's grace. They have rejected the only means of salvation. And thus their name is not written in that book of life. And the result of the great white throne judgment is not only tragic, but the third truth in this text is this. Unbelievers will spend eternity separated from God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Yet that's exactly what is happening here at the great white throne. Where you and I operate in, in grace. Where God is not giving full vent to man's sinfulness right now. There will come a day in which that grace will end. And God's judgment will be poured out. And it will be undiluted on those on earth. And it will culminate... In this final judgment in which no soul appearing at the great white throne judgment will be justified. For every soul here will be cast into an eternal fire. Body and soul will be joined together in a resurrection at the end of time only to stand before God and then to be removed from his presence for all of eternity. While many joke about it, such as, well, I want to go to hell because it's going to be a party and all my, my friends are going to be there. It ignores the reality that there is nothing good in hell because God's grace is not there. When we study scripture, Revelation 14 makes it clear that hell is a physical, mental, and spiritual separation from God for all of eternity. And so in response to this, there are two other common objections that people have to the doctrine of hell. The first one is people say, well, you know, God is a God of love, and so he's going to let everybody in, into heaven. It's the belief known as universalism. However, verses 14 and 15 make it abundantly clear that universalism is not true. That it is impossible for everyone to go to heaven. Because the only way to get into heaven is through 
faith in Christ. A surrender to God's grace. So then the second common objection that people have to the doctrine of hell is, well, I don't believe in hell. I believe that when you die, then you just, you no longer exist. This idea of annihilationism. Yet scripture from Genesis to Revelation clearly refutes that. The, the language of the text makes it impossible to believe that everyone's going to be saved or when we die, we just cease to exist. Scripture is abundantly clear that every soul created in the image of God, which is all of mankind, has an eternal destiny. But the question then becomes this. Why should you care? If you're, if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus and you go, I don't believe in the Bible, why should I care about this? Or even if you are here this morning and you say, yes, I love God, and, and, hey, I've got my salvation, I'm good. Why should I care about revelation? I want to give you two reasons that every one of us ought to care about the doctrine of hell. And then one thing that will explain what we should do. And it's up under the application in your outline. The first one would be this. We must realize that hell is real. You've probably heard people say that Jesus spoke on hell more often than any other person in the New Testament. Well, the word for lake of fire or hell in the Greek is Gehenna. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those times, it was Jesus speaking it. So it's very clear by his use of the word that Jesus believed that hell is real. Now, often this, this doctrine of hell is offensive to people because we live in a culture and an age of entitlement. We believe that we all deserve nothing but good to happen to us because, well, we're good people and, and we try. And we summarize that even if hell is real, God certainly wouldn't send somebody who tried to be a good person there. These are the lives that we have believed because we don't truly understand the scandal of the cross. See, the scandal of the cross, church, is not that God would allow someone to choose hell. The scandal of the cross is that God would choose to save any of us to begin with. For what is it about you and me that warrants God knowing us and loving us and desiring to redeem us? When from the moment we were conceived and birthed, we have done nothing but rebel and reject against him. Why do we think that God ought to save us? Because we can get dressed up and come in and sing a few songs? This is the truth. That if God gave us what we really deserve, None of us would stand justified. We would all stand condemned with the rest of the world. The greatest proof that hell is real is the cross. Because if hell isn't real, if we are not sinners born separated from God and destined for hell, then why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he suffer and die? If you and I could save ourselves, if we could be good enough, then why did Jesus have to die? 
If we could save ourselves in Jesus' death, Paul says, would have been in vain. It would have been pointless. But the scriptures declare that the eternal God who has always existed, who spoke everything into existence, he left his glory of heaven to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to be beaten, spit upon, mocked, ridiculed, scourged, and ultimately crucified. He did all of that because hell is real and there is no possible way to be saved or to escape hell apart from Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so we must understand that the fact that Jesus came to this earth proves that hell is real. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, of this said of this text, if we do not believe God will cast unbelievers into hell, then we will not be sure that God will take believers to heaven. You see, if I was to ask you how many of you believe in heaven, my guess is every hand would go up and then I would say, because of your belief in heaven, it necessitates your belief in hell. Because you can't have one without the other. The second reason that we should all care about the doctrine of hell is this. Hell is imminent. The great boxing legend Muhammad Ali said in an interview, the most important thing about life is what's going to happen when you die. Are you going to go to heaven or hell? That's eternity. Later in that same interview, he said, it just scares me to think one day I'm going, I'm going to die and one day go to hell. We often think, that hell is something that's far off. Yet we would be wise to heed the words of Scripture in James chapter 4, where he says, For what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a short time, and then it vanishes away. Or the words of the writer of Hebrews in the ninth chapter in the 27th verse, when he says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and then comes the judgment. The truth for every one of us in the world is this. We are but one breath away from stepping out into our eternity. Either an eternity in the presence of God based on his grace or an eternity of torment based on our rejection of his grace. We are but a moment from this. And this church is why we must have an urgency to be obedient to our calling, which is going to be the final application point this morning. And it's this, that we must share the gospel with everyone. Believing this morning that we are one moment away from forever. Church, we cannot afford to sit back and be complacent. We cannot live as though we have all the time in the world when all we truly have is the breath that is left in our body in this moment. The gospel must be on the tip of our tongues in every conversation we have. We must desire to speak more passionately of the gospel than anything else in this life. Before people know our political affiliation, they ought to know the gospel. Before they know our favorite sports team, they should know our gospel. Before they know our favorite music, our favorite place to eat, our favorite things to do, they should know the gospel. Because only the gospel can give them life. Only the gospel can speak light into this dark and hopeless world. And church, 
Nobody else other than the church has been given the call and the command to share this gospel. The church is God's vehicle for world evangelization, which means this. If we don't go, the gospel stays. And millions, if not billions of people will die, never having heard the truth. In fact, as we stand now, there are two billion people around the world who have never heard the gospel. In North America alone, three out of four, 75%, do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. When is it going to be enough, church? How many Fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, grandparents. How many neighbors? How many co-workers? How many people that we talk to at Kroger or Walmart or wherever? How many people that we spend countless days and weekends at sporting events are going to have to die before it breaks our heart and we weep before the throne of God for our sinfulness? go when we take the gospel God has given us two specific promises number one I am with you his second promise is this he has promised to save some now I'm not going to stand up here and say everybody you share the gospel with is going to believe that would refute scripture we know not everyone's going to believe but we go with a confident assurance that God's grace will be poured out on some and they will believe So let us, this morning, have a firm resolve as men and women who claim the name of Christ, as the body of Christ, let us so charge into the world as though we are storming the very gates of hell themselves, proclaiming one message and one message only, and that is that Jesus saves. Because if we don't, hell will enlarge herself that much more. Not because God doesn't desire to save people, but because we didn't love him and them enough. Don Whitney wrote a book that summarized Jesus' teaching on hell. He wrote 10 things about hell that Jesus taught. Whitney wrote, Jesus taught that hell is real. It is separation from God. It is for all the accursed ones. It is eternal. It's fire. It is a prepared place. It is with the devil and his angels. It is inevitable if you have never come to faith in Christ. It is inescapable once you are there. But it is avoidable if you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. those of you who have never accepted Christ, to those here who may 
be placing your faith in anything other than Jesus, I would ask you this question. What's keeping you from believing today? When we stand before God, our baptism, our church attendance, our Bible reading, praying, giving, all those things will not earn us a place in God's presence. Only a surrender to the grace of God that was poured out on Jesus. Will you hear the voice of Jesus calling you to trust Him and surrender to that grace today? To my brothers and my sisters in Christ, I would ask, what is keeping us from proclaiming this life-giving message more? What's it going to take? How many people in our family have to die? With us fully knowing that they never surrender to the grace of God. we say enough when's it going to be enough for us to stop playing church and start being the church because the only message God expressly told us to go and share was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ see I would submit to you this that if we love God and we love others the way that we say we do we will share the gospel. For there's only two possible reasons that we wouldn't share the gospel. Either we don't love God and love others the way we say we do, or we ourselves are not convinced hell is real. If either of those is the case, may God point it out to us that we may confess it. Because what we're dealing with, church, is life and death heaven and hell and it's found in the acceptance of the rejection of Jesus Christ would you stand with me as we're going to pray this morning Father as we close out this service we move to what's arguably the most important part of a worship service It's a truth that all of worship is important because the songs prepare our heart to hear and receive the word. And the word speaks to us and it points out what we should believe and it points out the sin in our life and it points us to you that we may live and trust in you. But Father, everything is pointing us to this moment a response not to a pastor not to a church but a response to the God who created us a response to the God who died for us a response to the God who now calls us to come to him and trust in him and his sacrifice, and his sacrifice alone. For there's no other way we could be saved 
apart from a relationship with you. But it's also a time in which your children respond confessing the sin of apathy. In which we've just become indifferent. Oh, we get passionate about our politics and, and our sports and, and any number, number of other things. We'll gladly tell people what we think about those things. Father, you're dealing with the sin of us not sharing the one message that we're called to send, the message we're called to speak. And that is that all flesh stands guilty and condemned before God. But in his love, in his grace, he provided a way in himself that we could be forgiven of our sins and we could be born again. And so, Lord, it's that message that we have proclaimed for the last however long. I pray that it's been clearly communicated that anyone here who is boldly rejecting you or trusting in anything else would see the sin, but more importantly, that they would see their Savior who is calling out to them to surrender to his grace that today might be that day of salvation. And that, Father, we would just lift up names of people that we know are not saved right now. We know it's a work that can only be done by you. So, God, we want to lift their name to you. We want to plead for their soul. We want to pray for an opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with them. And we want to pray for the boldness and the courage to speak it when you give us that opportunity. Father, we want to risk being ridiculed and rejected so that they could hear the gospel. Because it would be better to be rejected by men than to be rejected by you. So, Father, let us respond. Let us cry out to you, knowing that you will hear and knowing that you will move in a way that is consistent with your plan and your purpose. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to sing, O Come to the Altar. If you've never accepted Christ, it's an invitation to respond to that grace. But I, would, I just kind of wonder how many people here, maybe you're going, you know what, hey, Pastor, I, I trusted Jesus, praise God. But you know somebody that doesn't. You know somebody that's not saved. Would you love them enough to cry out on your knees before God for them? Would you love them enough to pray for an opportunity to share? So as we come to this altar, let's realize who we're taking care of business with.